When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, how's it going? It is a super warm day outside. They say that it's even heat wave season, which for Ireland means that everyone's going to die. Or maybe Ireland will drift down casually along the Atlantic and just land handily outside Spain. Either way, whatever happens, this is the latest episode of the Korean War. And hey, what do you know? It's brought to you by my book, my upcoming book on the Thirty Years' War. For God or the Devil, A History of the Thirty Years' War will be out, all being well, in November of this year. And if you would like to order it and send the money directly to my pocket, and then I send the book directly to you, signed to you and everything, then please order it from my website. Except no substitutes. Order it directly, and you will get it directly, and it will be a nice little personal touch added in there. Simply click on the link below to order For God or the Devil today. If you would like to get 20% off as well while you do this, then please sign up to the newsletter, and you'll be able to get a code which will help you get 20% off, and then everyone wins. 
Three satisfying seeing you guys ordering it directly from me. We're nearly up at 30 pre-orders, which maybe it doesn't sound like all that much, but to me, hey, it's a pretty big deal. You guys really care about the book. You really care about the stuff that I do, and it's a real privilege to be able to bring it to you. For God or the Devil is bringing you the Korean War this week, but in November, it'll be there with you for good. So please do go and order it. You'll love it, and I'll be very happy that you got it. Alright guys, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode 25. If you are wondering if you hear some screaming in the background or if you hear birds singing or what have you, do not be alarmed. It is a very warm day at the moment and it is summer season in when diplomacy fails and because I live near a pub, which is a good and bad thing, there are sometimes children and people outside and because I can't sit here and record with the window not open, sometimes you might hear the odd ambient background sound. But just so you know, everything's fine. I am here sweltering, but still bringing you the history because history, well, history doesn't sleep, but it also doesn't go out into the sunshine until it's done. It's duty, and this is my duty. It is Sunday. It is Sunday the, what is the date? The 24th of June. I don't know why I'm telling you this, but yes, I'm recording this the day before it is supposed to be released. And yeah, I just wanted to say thanks. Thanks very much for listening. Whether you're a patron or a history friend, I really, really appreciate you. And I forgot to mention it last time, but we're actually halfway through the Korean War now because there's 48 episodes altogether. And this is episode 25, so that's cool. Yeah. So if you've been with us from the beginning with the Korean War, you listened through the Cold War crash course and all that kind of stuff, then that's pretty cool. This episode here is kind of a handy summary because it looks at the actual war itself, the kind of conflict and the battles and everything else, so... If you're interested in that kind of thing, you've come to the right place. Last time we set up a good base for our story with regards to the UN and its role in the conflict, the United Nations, as we've discovered, was just one spoke in the spinning wheel of a story which made up the Korean War. Other spokes included the American foreign policy aim of strategically escalating the conflict for its defence budget increases, the Soviet aim of alienating the People's Republic of China from the West by compelling Mao to intervene in the Korean War, And of course, the ambitions of Kim Il-sung to establish a unified Korean regime, even while his Soviet supporters remained shaky and untrustworthy. Added to this, we have the desire of Mao Zedong to have nothing to do with the conflict, so that the People's Republic could focus on the question of Taiwan. Added to this, we have another spoke, the eventual reluctant realisation of Mao Zedong that intervention for the sake of Chinese security would have to be taken after all. And then another spoke, the American fear that if the Chinese intervened too early, it would be disastrous for the strategic position of the Allied forces in South Korea. And then another spoke, the tensions between General MacArthur and the Truman administration. And then another spoke, you can see what's going on here, the tensions between the United States and its allies, both within and without of the United Nations halls. And of course, the tension between the government's policy and the weight of public opinion, which had an impact in each of the member states. So having listed all these spokes or issues up for discussion, I've almost certainly missed several, but this should serve to illustrate why our coverage has been so slow to engage with the war's course as of yet. The famous landings at Incheon on the 15th of September propelled MacArthur to the peak of glory, 
and instilled within the United Nations allies a sense of purpose like never before. The North Korean people's army, meanwhile, was totally shattered. Yet, before this landing, before this big gamble, and before the reinforcements began arriving at Pusan from the UN member states in late August 1950, the strategic position of the United States' 8th Army, operating under the banner of the United Nations, was seriously grave. Precisely how grave we will discover in subsequent episodes, but for now it should suffice to say that, if not for some high-pressure, high-stakes American diplomacy, and some incredibly cynical actions on the part of Stalin to reduce the effectiveness of the North Korean People's Army, the Korean War may well have had a very different outcome. In this episode, though, we're tasked with first continuing where we left off and detailing the days between the 27th and 30th of June, where American activity and information increased, culminating in the deployment of the aforementioned 8th Army under the UN's supposed direction. Once those incredible events are detailed, we'll attempt to briefly summarise the military developments on the peninsula so it can be discerned exactly how dire the strategic position of Washington was, during the summer of 1950. As is my style, we will not be spending any great deal of time examining which unit fought here or there, or what weaponry or tactics they used. If you want to learn such details, I would recommend the focus on military matters given by Paul Kendrick in his Korean War podcast, which I'll provide a link for in the description. This is when diplomacy fails, though, and we're not interested in the battles taking place out in the open, oh no, but behind the scenes, where the real power and critical developments were decided upon and announced. With this in mind then, I will now take you to Washington on the evening of the 27th of June 1950, where the news of the passing of the UN resolution requesting aid for South Korea was learned of. The song of the week this week is not actually brought to you by anything. It is brought to you by me saying thanks for listening to the Korean War in general and saying I hope you're doing well. You guys have really been supporting the podcast really well lately and I've really enjoyed hearing your feedback and hearing what you've been thinking about the Korean War. It does seem to me that the Korean War has been something of a surprise favourite among a lot of you. Those that didn't think they would enjoy it but did, that makes me very happy indeed. So I'd just like to say thanks And the song of the week this week is I'll See You in Cuba by Jack Kaufman. And it was released in 1921. Enjoy it, guys, and we'll be back with episode 25 of the Korean War. Wonderful friends I have found. Uh, 
Tuesday, the 27th of June, had been a day of important events. The UN resolution had successfully passed, which enabled the US government to proceed with its plans for Korea, albeit carefully. Member states were urged to furnish the Republic of Korea with every assistance, and the North was identified as the enemy of the peace at long last. There was still a fog of war present, and it was not quite clear whether the North Korean People's Army had advanced beyond the Han River just yet. As the most logical defensive barrier, the Han River also guarded a critically important airfield, Su Wan, which was the only strip capable of handling the larger American cargo planes vital to any war effort. The only other strip of its kind on the peninsula was located in Pusan. In General MacArthur's mind, then, it was vital that this airstrip be held, lest the strategic tactical position of the Republic of Korean Army would be doomed and a retreat to Pusan would be the only realistic alternative. Understanding how the political process worked, on the evening of the 27th of June, MacArthur had been told that since the decision to militarily aid the Republic of Korean Army along the Han River was pending, the announcement should be made in the Korean language that American aid was forthcoming. MacArthur was relieved to hear this and couldn't have suspected that this was merely a ploy by Washington to stall. The second Blair House meeting that same evening had established three major points of policy. First, the air and naval reserves would be mobilised. Second, the permission would be granted for the Air Force to strike North Korean targets below the 38th parallel. And third, the US 7th Fleet would be permitted to anchor off the shore of Taiwan. These three decisions, coupled with the UN resolution supporting the provision of assistance to the Republic of Korea, suggested that US intervention on a large scale was imminent. The first step would surely be to instruct General MacArthur to land troops, since he commanded the US 8th Army in Japan. The close proximity of these troops could make a difference, MacArthur argued, but only if they were allowed to join the Republic of Korea's defence along the Han River. MacArthur's impatience to commit his men to the defence would prove problematic, but he had been pawned off for the moment. When the morning of Wednesday the 28th of June broke in Washington, it was clear that this would be another day of events. By this point, it was Wednesday evening in Korea, and Seoul had already fallen. Sporadic reports of a Republic of Korean Army defence at the Han River suggested that Syngman Rhee's regime had by no means collapsed, but since the policy in the administration was to cease from intervening until the North Korean People's Army broke over the Han and surged southwards, it still meant that the time was not yet right to strike. General MacArthur would thus still have to be fobbed off, an act which would be immensely difficult to achieve, since the wily general had recently sent his own advisor to the Han River to assess the situation. His advisor reported back to MacArthur that a defence would be possible along the Han River, but that if the 38th parallel was to be restored, American ground forces would have to be used. This distinction was important because, as it stood, MacArthur's instructions by the time everyone was waking up on the 28th of June was to provide assistance to the Republic of Korean Army through air and sea services and not through the actual army. The most important event which occurred on the 28th of June was something which should really have happened a long time before. 
The National Security Council met in its official capacity for the first time since the outbreak of the war. Previous Blair House meetings had been arranged, it seems, for the purpose of excluding certain persons who may have issued their own protests or questioned the course of policy. But now that the UN resolution had been passed and several decisions in Washington had already been made, the administration was insulated enough from such criticism to follow protocol. Even so, though, the director of the CIA and the Joint Chiefs were not invited, which signalled that protocol was still being liberally interpreted. It was a stuffed meeting, taking place in the cabinet room of the White House. On the agenda was the issue of preparing the ground in the public sphere for the commitment of American soldiers, as well as the question of security in the interconnected Cold War world. One imagines the heavy breathing of the different statesmen as the vulnerable talking points were discussed. Could an attack be expected in Yugoslavia, in Germany or on Taiwan while the Korean morass occupied American attentions? What would Washington do if the Soviet Union responded by committing its own troops? Could American forces be held back from aggravating the situation and provoking a third world war? All were agreed that Korea was not the place anyone wished to fight such a conflict. Yet if the war remained localised and if the conflict was restricted only to the peninsula, then such concerns were less immediate. The 7th Fleet had been moved to Taiwan, it was said, for the purpose of containing the war and preventing any action by Chiang Kai-shek, which might aggravate Mao into intervening. In addition, the conservative instructions given to MacArthur only permitted him to strike below the 38th parallel. Now, it was said, the time had come to consider the expansion of the war, the striking of targets beyond the 38th, and the best place to commit ground troops. Targets in the north were identified and it was learned that the British had moved to combine their far eastern fleet with that of the American 7th Fleet under MacArthur. This official meeting on the 28th of June can be seen both as a necessary act of protocol by the administration and by a feeling exercise designed to assess the mood of those present. Certainly the majority of the meeting's attendees were in the know and included many of Atchison's protégés. Truman had neglected to invite those that might disagree heavily with the policy or question the previous inaction, such as the CIA director who we met in previous episodes. The result was a well-orchestrated kind of charade that enabled any bad news put forward by Atchison to be answered by Truman or an underling. When Atchison pointed out that, We could not count on the continuance of the enthusiastic support that our staunch attitude in Korea had evoked, in the country and in the world. Truman reinforced Atchison by claiming that there could be no backing out now, unless a military situation somewhere else demanded such action. One of Atchison's underlings then piped up that the President's declarations for South Korea had elicited a general feeling of relief among the NATO allies. When the Vice President pointed to the Senate debates earlier in the week, and to one senator's questioning of these NATO allies to provide genuine assistance, Truman was able to produce the aforementioned evidence that the British Far East fleet would be joined to MacArthur's. It must have had the effect of putting steel into those that attended, and when Atchison moved to communicate the NSC meeting's findings to a press conference in the late afternoon of the 28th of June, he presented his case as though America was already united on the Korea question. Korea, Atchison said, was now under the aegis of the United Nations, adding that the entire action of the government of the United States has been taken under presidential leadership 
there has been complete unity among the President's advisers, civil and military. There was also declared to be complete unity regarding congressional understanding of the problem, and Acheson confirmed that there was similar unity among the people of the United States. While Acheson wouldn't comment on the Soviet Union's role, he would add that the willful absence of the Soviet delegate to the United Nations did not make the UN resolution somehow invalid. Such a Soviet disrespect for UN procedure was an act of denial, and for Moscow to suggest that the resolution was illegal was totally unfounded, in Acheson's words. Just as Acheson was finishing up his speech, thousands of miles away General MacArthur was landing in South Korea, only 20 miles from the Han River front line. Convinced that the situation required his urgent assessment, MacArthur was determined to spend a few hours in the region, fulfil the necessary photo ops, put steel into the members of the Korean military advisory group that remained present, and attempt to devise some kind of solution to the problems that the Republic of Korean Army faced. By this stage it was early morning on Thursday the 29th of June, and the North Korean People's Army had yet to break through the Han River barrier. MacArthur's problem, as he eloquently put it, was... How can I bomb north of the 38th parallel without Washington hanging me? As it turned out, MacArthur would justify what he perceived as a necessarily loose interpretation of the UN resolution's orders by the disastrous strategic situation that faced him. Unless the bases from which the North Korean Air Force operated were destroyed, there could be no hope of salvaging this defensive line along the Han. Remember, MacArthur had no notion of the deliberate policy to let the hand fall and stall for time until this happened, so he was, reasonably enough, trying to do his job on the morning of the 29th of June, as best as he could. According to MacArthur, where the UN resolution had requested a restoration of peace to the area, in reference to the 38th parallel, the term area was a perfect vehicle for his plan. In addition, by attacking bases in the north, he would be greatly aiding the Republic of Korea army, but he would not be invading the North. He had found his grey area, his loophole in the resolution, and since MacArthur believes that holding the hand was a strategic necessity, he spared no expense or time in issuing new orders. After several hours touring the region, MacArthur authorised that the following message be sent to the Deputy Chief of the Far East Air Force, based in Japan. Take out North Korean airfield immediately. No publicity, MacArthur approves. Even more important was MacArthur's decision to travel within half an hour of the Han front line. There he became convinced that a defence was possible, but only if American troops, his 8th army in Japan, were immediately committed to the defence. On his journey back to Tokyo, he sought to communicate this to Washington. There is some controversy over exactly what happened next. If we believe that MacArthur was acting with all haste, and we know that he communicated with Washington via telecom late in the evening, then it stands to reason that he communicated his concerns about the situation in Korea, and that he also explained the solution. Ground forces should be deployed from Tokyo to the Han River immediately. But the Truman administration didn't want to hear this. A commitment to defend at the Han River could prevent the kind of lengthy conflict from developing that they wanted. Thus, MacArthur's telecom contents went unheeded. In fact, if you believe Richard C. Thornton, they weren't merely ignored, but also covered up. Since Thursday was a day of 
National Security Council meetings and press conferences in Washington, there was no time to admit that the commander in the Far East had recommended a stand along the defensible Han. Far better it was to declare the willingness of Washington to commit to a so-called police action and deployment of troops to the Pusan region. Standing before the press at 4pm on Thursday the 29th of June, Truman made the now infamous speech which greatly understated the actual commitment in lives, money and material that the United States would eventually contribute. Truman said, The Republic of Korea was set up with UN help and was recognised as the legal government by the members of the United Nations. It was unlawfully attacked by a bunch of bandits, neighbours in North Korea. The UN met and passed a resolution to go to the relief of the Republic to suppress a bandit raid. The action this country has taken is a police action, a UN police action. That was exactly what it amounted to. Shortly after the conference, Truman met again with the National Security Council and communicated that meeting's conclusions to General MacArthur at just before 7pm Washington time that day. By the time MacArthur received it at 9am Tokyo time on Friday morning, the 30th of June, he was already, surely, sitting on pins and needles waiting for the official response to his earlier telecom discussion. Reading the recommendations of the meeting in Washington, MacArthur must have been stunned His earlier recommendations and urgings hadn't been addressed at all. Maybe the president had misunderstood? Rather than permit troops to be sent to the Han, the administration had ordered troops be sent to Pusan. After a few hours considering what to do next, MacArthur sent a cable of his earlier telecom to Washington. Most histories cite this as the moment when MacArthur first made contact with the White House following his trip to the Korean front line the day before, and as the moment when he first recommended the defence along the Han. Yet, if we believe that MacArthur understood the situation to be urgent, and that he communicated in telecom with Washington during his return journey, from Korea, the night before, it seems inconceivable that MacArthur would just go to bed, as most histories have him doing, rather than sending his recommendations as soon as he could. You may well wonder why I bother dwelling on such an issue at all. Well, The key point during this five-day period was timing, and by the time the Truman administration claimed to have properly received the cable from MacArthur, it was learned only a few hours later that the Han River line had been breached, making MacArthur's recommendations impossible to follow. Yet, had the General's urgent advice been followed 15 hours before, Washington would have been forced to commit to a defence of the Han, and the President would have to acknowledge his General's informed opinions. By claiming that MacArthur offered no such opinions until it was far too late, the administration could portray their actions as wise and informed, while MacArthur's appeared unrealistic and impossible. It was easy to claim that MacArthur had been late to the game, because no transcript of the telecom communications between MacArthur and Washington over the 24-hour period, save for the final one that most people know about, was actually kept. Yet, for someone like MacArthur to have gone to bed and to have refrained from doing the exact thing he claimed he was going to do while in Korea, that is, talk immediately to Washington when he got back to Tokyo, it was just, it was the antithesis of his character and it went against his instincts as a soldier if nothing else. If we accept that Washington ignored and dallied to await the breakout along the hand that was desired, then the events which followed make much more sense. By the afternoon of Friday the 30th of June in Tokyo, 
MacArthur had to admit that his old recommendations had actually been outpaced by events on the ground in Korea. Now that the Han River was breached, the airfield at Suwon would be lost, and only the airfield at Pusan could replace it. Mindful of this, MacArthur switched immediately from requesting a defence of that Han line to requesting two divisions for the defence of South Korea at the only point now feasible to defend, the Pusan perimeter. Similarly, it had been a long night for the Truman administration, but in an informal meeting called at 9.30am on that Friday, Truman, Acheson and some others met to discuss the plan going forward. In light of the news that the Han had been breached by then, the peninsula was plainly in danger of being overrun, and troops would have to be supplied immediately to prevent this from happening. Further points were discussed at this significant meeting, which again couldn't be classed as a typical meeting of the National Security Council, since too many important members of that body were absent. Chiang Kai-shek had offered 33,000 soldiers to hold the line in South Korea, but this offer was politely declined in light of the fact that the Republic of Korea needed anti-tank weapons, air support and better overall weaponry, in other words the things that Syngman Rhee had been asking for for the last year, rather than more bodies to plug up the gaps. Thus, the American commitment, under the banner of the United Nations of course, would provide the necessary technology as well as the bodies. A naval blockade of North Korea would commence in earnest, and MacArthur would be given full authority to use the ground forces under his command. While the impression was given that MacArthur had free reign in the region and could commit men as he desired, the general was bound by previous instructions and furthermore, he was tied to the policy of his president. Whether MacArthur liked it or not, he would now have to abide by the strategy as advised by Washington. On the bright side, MacArthur could take solace in the fact that the civilian and military authorities in Washington were now on side with the police action and they wouldn't stand in his way. It had been a tangled mess of political and diplomatic manoeuvring among the varied departments and it had also taken great leaps in selective interpretation and deafness but the manipulation of the situation by the administration had paid off. Now that the Han River line had been breached, the soldiers could be committed and America would hopefully have the war it required, cloaked in language and rhetoric that would hopefully spur America's allies and her public on. There could be no question that the North had initiated the war, but Washington was now determined to make this war her own. The tangle of negotiation may have ended for now, but the tangle of war was just beginning. So now that we've brought the narrative to the point where America gets involved in the war, it's worthwhile spending the rest of this episode detailing how that war actually progressed on the battlefield. I know that we here at When Diplomacy Fails aren't much for battlefield scenes, but I figured it would be better to detail the course of the war in a few minutes, rather than spend an episode on it. If you're interested in the war's course and in the technology, tactics, battlefield formations or overall strategy, then you're unlikely to get much from my take on the Korean War. I mean, heck, if you've gotten halfway through and not realised that yet, then I'm afraid I've got some bad news for you. We will be using anecdotes of different soldiers' experiences in future episodes, though, and we will, of course, have to refer to the major events in the war from time to time, such as the landing at Incheon, for example, for the sake of clarity. Since diplomatic, political history is my jam, I felt... It'd be a bit of a leap from our normal formula if we suddenly began examining the movements of individual divisions on both sides. I also find such details, 
yeah, really boring, even while I understand that some of you guys love this stuff, so make sure and check out the bibliography for further reading, and the Korean War podcast by Paul Kendrick I mentioned before, which is also listed in the description of this episode too. Several historians do this aspect of the war far better than my natural interests will allow me to, so rather than force it, I figured it would make sense to embrace what I'm good at, and to mostly avoid what I'm not. For those of you that expected as much from me, or who've been with When Diplomacy Fails for a long enough time now and know how I work, of course this isn't too much of a surprise for you. But I am aware that for many listeners who saw the Korean War and are listening now, you may not know me or my style all that well. If you're like some insane people that skip the introductions for everything, you may not know that I never intended to give a detailed exposition on battlefield details, or what the thickness of the T-34 tank's armour was, or who was wearing what wig in Mig Alley. Kind of proud of that. So this disclaimer is for you, but if you do like my style, I hope you won't be scared off from this different take. My niche has always been following the history in this way, and overall, I do think it helps the story flow far better than it would, if I had to take the time out to cover topics that I don't really like. So for reasons of selfishness as much as narrative, this is the way it's going to be. I hope you'll stick with us in any case. With that spiel out of the way, here's a rough overview on how the course of the war progressed, up to the point that the United Nations got properly involved. With the Americans committed under the UN banner from early July 1950, American involvement in the conflict became more acute, but it did not turn the tide. Instead, despite MacArthur's expectations, these understrength, underprepared and undertrained, mostly policing troops, got a lot more than they bargained for when they were shipped to Korea. It is morbidly ironic that police action was the phrase eventually gone with, since the 8th Army's divisions, sent from their duties policing the Japanese people in the post-war arrangement, had become little more than a peacekeeping force by 1950 after five years on that job. It was a sudden, sharp shock to those that arrived in the Pusan perimeter, expecting not all that much from the North Korean People's Army, mostly because, well, MacArthur had led them to think that way. After a push northwest to the town of Taejon, a new perimeter was established along the Kum River, just a few miles north. Soldiers pushed forward to the town of Osan, and it was there on the 5th of July that the first battle between the North Korean People's Army and the United States 8th Army took place. By its end, the shattered and stunned remnants of the 540-man group, Task Force Smith, which had been sent to hold it, told the tale of what took place. The advance by the North Korean People's Army, using tanks and air support, seemed unstoppable, and the total amount of 18,000 US and 58,000 Republic of Korea soldiers seemed pitifully small in comparison to the apparently limitless reserves of the North Koreans. On the 9th of July, General Walton Harris Walker, a veteran of the Second World War, where he had distinguished himself repeatedly in command, arrived with high hopes at Taegu. Taegu had been the administrative capital of South Korea after the fall of Seoul the week before, but reports to Walker suggested that this base might not be long for this world either. The American 24th Division attempted to hold their positions along the Coombe River and in Taejon itself. The North Korean People's Army swarmed around them though and into the town from several directions. Those that didn't flee were cut off and destroyed and some 3,000 men were lost in the course of this first true test of American metal. 
A complete retreat began as all forces swarmed backwards to the beachhead from where they had initially landed. It is impossible to generalise about the bravery of either side, but it would be an unfair exaggeration to argue that all American soldiers turned tail and ran for the south. Bug out fever, as it was called, hadn't set in yet as it would when the Chinese counterattack came, but that event still seemed a long way off in July 1950. The combination of fighting retreats and an increasing command of the air meant that even those units that were shattered and fled in a rout could live to fight another day if they were fast enough. The destination, as everyone well knew, was to move to the southeast. Before long, a new, more stable perimeter had been established. This was the Pusan perimeter, and for much of August and September, the North Korean People's Army were to test the limits of the 8th Army's endurance, as its battered divisions clung on amidst a gradually shifting international situation and a shrinking pocket of defence. After holding the line, the strategic scope of war began to change, and not in North Korea's favour. To begin with, the United States and Republic of Korea were able to take advantage of the overstretched nature of the North Korean People's Army, and their supply lines became dangerously stretched. North Korean units could only travel or be supplied at night because of the air superiority of the United States Far East Air Force, which was based in Pusan's airstrip, and it was just too overwhelming a firepower to move during the day. This slowed the North Korean advance and also reduced morale. There was a growing sense that the war was changing its character. Soon, Americans were not the only ones in the Pusan perimeter. By late August 1950, the US 24th Division was in an exhausted state of disarray. Although they held the Pusan perimeter courageously against repeated attacks from the north, it seemed unlikely that the ever so gradual shift backwards could be halted. General MacArthur, overcoming perhaps his own predispositions towards Asian peoples and his own expectations of fighting a war in his sphere of command, accepted that the 24th Division of the US 8th Army needed help. What was needed wasn't just a new strategy for tackling the Korean crisis, but also fresh manpower reserves and a new sense of purpose. It was in late August that the trickle of foreign soldiers with curious accents and very clean faces began to arrive in the Pusan perimeter. To the strained 24th, these men seemed like a wonderful gift, but in fact these foreign detachments were more than that. They were the living embodiment of history being made. Military delegations from a total of 16 UN member states were arriving in the Pusan perimeter for something truly groundbreaking. The first, and to this day only, unanimously approved act of collective security and the history of the United Nations. Next time, we'll examine a few of these detachments and the story of the men involved, how their governments arrived at the decision to send them here, and what impact they made on the overall course of the war. Until then though, my name is Zach and this has been episode 25 of the Korean War. Thanks for listening, history friends, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.